anytime you make a bold financial decision or even create a financial goal, which is what a lot of couples do, it creates conflict in our lives because there are often competing objectives, right? The decision to pay off debt can have a negative impact on how romantic your relationship can be, right? Choosing to leave a job to focus on either skill building or to preserve your mental health can directly impact your desires or your ability to support a parent or a cause that you deeply believe in and finding that perfect balance between kind of life's objectives and your financial goal can start to feel impossible. (laughs) Like it feels like it is a constant balancing act, which is why we think it's so important to be grounded in a set of core values that kind of guide your thinking as you go along. Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about (laughs) M&Ms, marriage and money. Love and marriage, love and marriage, something better like a horse. You can't disparage. I don't know what lyric I was about to sing. It was ending in horse and carriage. Remix. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know what I was singing. Yeah. Love and marriage. Yeah. But money and marriage is one of our favorite topics. And there's actually been like a lot of high profile divorces in the media lately. And while I don't know whether they're because of money or not, we do know that money is the leading cause of divorce and separation in the United States. And then when you factor in that the median cost of a divorce is $7,000, but the average is between fifteen dollars and $20,000, it just kind of compounds the issue. And we know that money just kind of creates all kinds of other symptoms that might actually lead to causes two through 10 for divorce. So we wanted to talk about it a little bit. Yeah. And in looking up those stats, I found some other interesting stats about divorce. Sorry to start this off on a (laughs) negative note. Well, you know what, though? Divorce is not always, or I would say recently, has not been nearly as considered as negative. No, it hasn't. Right? So I've done a a couple of of like freedom parties. Yeah. They're just like, you know what? I'm free. I'm celebrating it. And it's like, you know what? This was the best decision for us. Yeah. And so, you know what? Come over. Yeah, <laughs> we're, having, we're having a party because we're not going to, you know, ruin everyone else's events anymore. We're just going to respectfully agree that we're going to walk and talk and move in different directions. Yeah, the stigma has definitely shifted. And I think because some of the stats that I'm about to share, it's it's changing. I don't want to say it's becoming normal, but it's definitely becoming a part of life that people aren't necessarily hiding anymore. Yeah. So the average age for people going through a divorce for the first time is 30 years old. And the seven year itch is real because that is the average length of time for a marriage. That tracks is I'm thinking about my personal experience and when I went through like what felt like a a series of people that just kind of went ghost for a second and then they pop back up and was like, oh man, what happened? I was like, man, you know, yeah. You already know, man. Yeah, a lot yeah. of those people are marrying they, they, young. They, they married young. Mm-hmm. They realized it. And then, to your point, right around 30, 32 is when they decide to call it quits. Okay, but on the opposite side, divorces among people that are over the age of 50 are rising. And if you're a Black woman between the ages of 50 and 59, you are actually, statistically speaking, most likely to get divorced. 
So there's also like mm. another stage where maybe it's after you're an empty nester, the kids are grown, mm. you decide like I'm done. I needed the partnership for the child rearing part and yeah. now I'm I'm over it. Yeah. And then the last thing that I learned is kind of like everything else, there's a peak period for divorce which is January. In January, a lot of couples choose to start the filing process and there's a number of reasons for it. Some of it is tax purposes. Some of it is just kind of getting through the holidays and not wanting to be like not wanting to ruin that with family or in some of it, the family is what was a catalyst, like spending all that time together was a catalyst for just being like, nah, I'm not doing this. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) not doing this. This is not where I want to be anymore. (laughs) Uh, But no, yeah, listen, man, the holidays are super stressful. So I can see how that becomes a thing that triggers it. I also think people bring like really lofty and romantic expectations. Like you can blame Hollywood for that, right? Yeah. It's like you, you watch one too many rom-coms and you feel yeah. like, why am I not that character? Yeah, how right come now? I don't wake up singing every morning? Yeah. There's no birds around my head. Yeah, yeah no. no. That's not where you live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, money is complicated. Marriage is complicated. And so when you start to combine money in marriage or even if we're just talking about long-term relationships or partnerships, it takes... A lot of work. There's a reason there are so many like retreats and books and mm-hmm. TV shows about it because like it, there is no answer. We are not. I'm telling you right now, the final thought is not going to be <laughs> be like us. <laughs> so nope, not at all. Like be like whoever you need to be for whatever you need to do. But I do think that there's something to uh, looking at money in marriage because the couples who do it well, I, I think, do tend to achieve financial success and there's a lot of there's a lot of value there. I've got my own set of stats. One of them is that 86% of millionaires are married. And so I immediately think about Warren Buffett. Um I feel like I quote him a lot, but they're like really general, you know, quotes. But one of his, you know, best recommendations is like, you know, keep it simple, but also like the person that you married is one of the best decisions that you will ever make and I I completely agree with that. So if you just break that down or just look at the sort of details around why marriage can be a a huge ingredient in financial success, I think there are several, and these are just a couple that come uh, come to mind, but you have greater flexibility in terms of benefits. And so for people that are working and you're thinking about your healthcare options or your 401k options, when you have two working adults and they have both uh, great sets of benefits. You get to choose between the two. You get to figure out a combination of the two that works for you. And in theory, that is something that you can use to your advantage. You can get a better plan. You can get a more cost-effective plan versus not having that option at all. So that flexibility is important. And it extends to the wider set of insurance benefits. Even when you think about something like insurance, and we've we've always said people talk a lot about the big three, which is housing, transportation, and food. But I feel like that fourth might be insurance because mm-hmm. you start to think about all of the different types of insurance that you might need just to exist these days. And one of the best things that you can do uh, to help reduce your costs out of pocket with your insurance is to bundle them. And so again, when you have another partner, you've got those other options. You can bundle those things. You can add more people. It really just helps to kind of keep those costs in check. When you think about retirement and social security benefits, obviously when you have a partner, unfortunately that person will pass away at some point, you do have the ability to take a claim on their social security benefits. Mm -hmm. The same is true with really any 
other type of investment account or life insurance policy, if they list you as a beneficiary, right? That's literally not something that you can do unless you have that partner or unless you just have someone in life that loves you so much that they're willing to list you as a beneficiary. But in most cases, we're talking about who you were married to and you having sort of a claim or access to the earnings or the investments that that person may have had. But then there's just like the fundamentals of a dual income household, right? Like there's greater value in two incomes, two paychecks, or four, if you think if everyone has a side hustle or something else, than just one, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, quantity, more money does Mm -hmm. matter. I think a little bit about our book and and the chapter where we talk about the 15-year career, and we spent a lot more time breaking that down in terms of what you should be doing with your job. But underneath that all, we were also talking about what you should be doing with your money. And I think this is just one of the simplest examples that you can do. But assuming you're in a dual income earning household and both people are investing in a 401k and you max that out based on the 2022 or even the 2023 contribution limits because they're going up next year. Uh, If you do that for just a 15 year stretch, Two income earning household, maxing out a 401k, we're talking about, what is that, $44,000, a year. You do that consistently for 15 years and you'll be sitting on over a million dollars. If you don't touch that thing for another 25 years, again, you decide to cash out, you max out your 401k for 15 years, and then decide that you're not going to contribute another dime to that nest egg. That million dollar nest egg after 25 years grows to $9 million. And if you let it grow for 30 years, not 30 more, but just five more years after that 25 year period, you're now sitting on around 13, $14 million. We're talking about standard, simple total stock market index funds Mm -hmm. or like an S&P 500 fund, literally not complicated, don't need to be an expert. But if you just commit to doing that for 15 years, that's the kind of power that a dual income earning household can do if they make the right decisions. Now, when I say things like marriage is a financial cheat code, that's that's exactly what I mm-hmm. mean, right? Because we're not even talking about employer match on top of that. We're not talking about household uh, or equity in your home mm-hmm. or any real estate or any business income or any of the other things that we know people do to build wealth. I'm just talking about your employer-sponsored plan. You both commit after you get married that we're going to work for 15 years at a minimum. This is what we're going to do and this is why. That's where you can end up if you make the right decision. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's a lot of power in that, which begs the question, well, why don't more people do this? Like, If it's so simple, why don't people do it? And I think it's because life is just complicated. Like Life gets in the way. It does. It does. There's a lot of perks for being married, but life is complicated. Kids, are expensive. You just going to blame it on the kids. <laughs> yeah, we did that episode. <laughs> $300,000 per kid, right? And then there's just the beast of consumerism and this idea that we want what we want right now. Yep. And you multiply that by two when you get married. And we always advise people that are excited about marriage and combining incomes. Like marriage doesn't automatically mean you get a raise. Like, yes, that other person may bring income, but they also bring expenses. They also bring their own baggage and their own spending habits. Well, that income, in some cases, can push you into a higher tax bracket, too. Correct. Yeah. So today we want to talk about three obstacles that kind of get in the way of couples achieving their financial goal. And maybe we can offer some tips to overcome them. 
So the first big obstacle that we've seen from the couples that we've talked to is just this inability to overcome conflict. Yep. Just a straight up, you just can't get past like dogs it. Dogs with a bone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so ironic because anytime you make a bold financial decision or even create a financial goal, which is what a lot of couples do, it creates conflict in our lives because there are often competing objectives, right? The decision to pay off debt can have a negative impact on how romantic your relationship can be right? Choosing to leave a job to focus on either skill building or to preserve your mental health can directly impact your desires or your ability to support a parent or a cause that you deeply believe in. And finding that perfect balance between kind of life's objectives and your financial goal can start to feel impossible. (laughs) Like it feels like it is a constant balancing act, which is why we think it's so important to be grounded in a set of core values that kind of guide your thinking as you go along. So we kind of have three core values. There's probably more than three, but the three primary ones that we want to share with you are the things that kind of help us stay grounded whenever we are in between this big financial goal and just life, life (laughs) and doing what it does. So the first core value that we have is conflict isn't always a red flag, right? There are lots of people who experience conflict and they think it's just like this indictment over their relationship and the health of their relationship. Conflict is completely natural when you're making shared decisions about money and it's not something to be afraid of. It's actually a byproduct of growth. So what we do is define the health of our relationship around the ability to navigate that conflict versus the absence of it altogether. So it's just like a simple reframing. The second core value that we have is that there are no winners. We try to focus on the shared outcome and remember that at the end of the day, we're on the same team, right? We're Shaq and Kobe. We're LeBron and Dwayne. You got to stop saying Shaq and Kobe. I know. I was trying to think of another one, but I couldn't think of who plays together. KD and whoever he played with. That's not a good one either. Giannis and one of Giannis's brothers. (laughs) That's actually a pretty good one. But that's kind of creepy. But the, are they on the same team? Yes, it's a literal brother okay. and the whole marriage thing. <laughs> Either way, weird. if you can keep in mind that you're on the same team, the score, so to speak, I'm using air quotes, takes care of itself because y'all are both working towards the same thing, right? And then the third thing that we believe in, this core value, is that we're willing to break or bend tradition to not be so like bound and kind of held by these preconceived beliefs about how things should be. Yeah. Each of us came to this relationship with previous experiences, expectations that were like a reflection of the family that we grew up in or some random family that we saw on TV that we always wanted to be. But when we could step away from those, not fantasies, but just expectations and just looked at the family that we were creating, it was much easier to create new expectations that allowed each of us to play to our own strengths. Yeah. I want to go back to Shaq and Kobe because, like, who, who would be Shaq? Who would be Kobe? I'm, well, I, I you think. See what I'm saying? I, yeah, I, I feel like I'm Kobe. Okay. <laughs> I'm that's the Mamba. You, do, you don't really sound passionate about that. But that's fine. You can be Kobe. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, well, you a, brought the question. I'm just curious. Okay. It was and, a metaphor. Okay, we're gonna switch go gears. ahead. 
What's the key to resolving conflict? Yes. So, uh, and shout out to you for really introducing this to uh, to me. But uh, I think uh, as we put in our book and as we've spoken about in the past is that the key to resolving conflict specifically for couples here is really about attunement. I like to think of it as more like harmony, but like attunement. And so we really have to credit Dr. Sue Johnson, who is a clinical psychologist who came up with this term. And she says that when couples fight, regardless of the topic, they're doing a dance. It's just a dance. There's this back and forth and you're sort of moving and grooving and you're thinking about what the other person is doing and what you're doing. But you're also trying to make sure that she don't look silly. One partner makes a move. The other one responds accordingly, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Johnson insists that the dance is always the problem. Like, it's not you, right? So if it's not looking like you thought it was going to look, like the problem is not you, it's not me or the other person, it's not us as a unit. It's and not it's, the topic. It's not the topic, right? By focusing on the dance itself, we can shift our focus and look at our interaction patterns whenever there's an issue. So if the conflict is the dance, then our emotions are basically the music. It's the thing that are dictating all of our movements, right? Or shaping it, if you will. And so the idea of being emotionally attuned or financially attuned means that you can both hear the same song or at the very least acknowledge that your song is not the only one that is playing. And I think that that understanding really just allows you to save space for the other person to be free and to move, which is why I call it harmony but it's 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 almost much more free flowing like water if you will not the channel bruce lee but really that's that's i think ultimately the goal here when we're talking about overcoming conflict is to recognize that hey there are moments where you might be listening to the same song there are moments where the other person is listening to a completely different song and that's okay too just keep dancing don't worry about it you may not always be how you define being in sync but that's okay. And, and it always makes me think of like a silent disco. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it always looks so weird and creepy <laughs> uh, when you go to like the cruise or the resort or in some cases it's just a party and everyone has on the headphones. But like imagine a world where everyone wasn't listening to the same song. Like it would. There get, are some that do that. It would get a little awkward. The right? color of your headphones dictates the song that you hear. Correct. And it does look awkward. Correct. <laughs> but you're both enjoying it, right? Yeah. And you're like, you know what? We we came here knowing that this might happen. It's okay. <laughs> I don't know what you're listening to right now, but I'm grooving, you're grooving, and we're agreeing that we're going to have a good time. We're going to let our curiosity and appreciation for this moment overcome like any sense of judgment that we may have yeah. over or uh, for the other person. Yeah, that's kind of the way that you should approach the conversation as to figure out like, what song are you listening to? Why does money make you act like you're in a rager (laughs) versus me where it makes me act like I'm doing a slow dance? Like it's about finding out like what is underneath it all and then recognizing that, okay, as soon as I bring this up, he's going to want to like Eastside Stomp. So I need to be prepared (laughs) to either match that energy or completely like, Stay away from talking about it in that way. Yeah. All right. The second obstacle that couples face is that they have these ineffective conversations about money. And by ineffective, it means it doesn't get you the result that you're looking for. You talked about money, but you didn't get nowhere. You you thought you talked about it. You thought, yeah, money came up, but like the conversation didn't land where you wanted it to land. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first one is that we speak infrequently, unclearly, and in these coded languages because we're afraid of the conflict or we're afraid of just making ourselves vulnerable. 
So we'll say things like, I just want to make good money. Or we start to identify as our career and we say, well, I'm in retail, so I'll never make a lot of money. And it's like, okay, retail and you are not the same thing. (laughs) Like you are a whole person who's capable of doing whatever you want to do. And then the other reason we have these ineffective conversations is that we just don't talk enough. We only confront each other about money when something's wrong. And it is a confrontation that quickly kind of devolves into this blame game because it's feeling very like attacky. It's feeling, it's feeling like you don't actually want to talk to me. You want something else. Yeah. Or, or it's it's not even, I think just, you don't want to talk to me or you want something else. Sometimes it's just like, I'm projecting how I feel, but I'm not really offering a solution or anything that I think is going to help us find a mutual solution. Yeah. And so one of the tips I think that are really helpful is just avoiding or at least being mindful of that kind of convenient shorthand mm-hmm. that a lot of us do and to be deliberate around practicing better and more comprehensive ways of talking about money. So We've met a lot of people who say things, well, I'm a teacher, so I don't make a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes if you break that down, like you can hear like the, the underlying frustration in that, the projecting that this is how the world works. It's mm-hmm. messed up. It is what it is. You married me anyway. And so we are going to have to deal with this or I'm a social worker or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Insert, you know, title and, and career trajectory. And there's like this built in sort of frustration that people are oftentimes projecting. That's one way of doing it. The other way is getting specific. Say we're talking about money and say, hey, my starting salary is $45,000. I am on this kind of trajectory. It may take me three to five years, but when I get there, it's going to be, let's say, Mm $70,000. Like just start getting specific, right? Instead of saying, I'm never going to make a lot of money. But how much is a lot of money, right? right? And even if it is $40,000, $40,000 may be all we need, but let's talk about what we're going to do with Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. $40,000. So it's really just a matter of, I think, being specific and being willing to be vulnerable because I think that's something that a lot of people are fearful of, even with their partners. The second one, just kind of using another example, is when people are talking about what they don't want. So you may hear a couple or a person in a relationship or yourself saying, well, I'm not sending my child to this school, a mm-hmm. public school, or I'm not sending my child to that kind of daycare. And again, the underlying sort of goal there is to suggest that like, regardless of how much this costs or is going to save us, my expectation is that we are in a position where we are willing to pay for something that is more in line with XYZ. Again, not nearly as specific enough, not very solution oriented. And in some cases, you're projecting what you don't want and kind of asking the other person to just go along with it without really offering any type of detail. And I think a better way of kind of approaching that conversation is to say, well, you know what? I want to explore homeschooling. I know we had that conversation. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about, you know, becoming nomads at some point and started looking at what world school programs or those kinds of things might look like. But we don't just start there. It's a matter of saying, well, this is how much that would cost because mm-hmm. that dictates what we might be able to do or how long we might be able to do something. Uh, And so I think those are kinds of the things that are really, really helpful. I know quality uh, matters in terms of being more specific, but to reinforce what Kirsten said, quantity matters as well. You really want to make sure that you're having enough of these conversations to make sure that you've covered 
everything that you can to make sure that everyone has had a fair opportunity to express themselves and to offer up some of the prospective solutions that they may have to helping to overcome uh, any type of conflict or financial decision that you make and ultimately getting to a point where you can be in a tune in, in tune or attuned uh, with your partner when it comes to uh, these kinds of difficult conversations. It always makes me think of every time we get into this topic, we were, I was going to say blessed, but fortunate <laughs> to uh, have a really cool experience. We were on a television show called uh, Love and Marriage Huntsville. I don't know what season it was. I just know it was like sometime the last one. I last think it was year. season four. Well, I don't know when people, okay, oh. season four, whenever you're listening to this, but we, uh, it's a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And uh, we were brought in to help uh, one of the couples, Marceau and Tisha, who was having some challenges communicating and tracking and really, I think, just appreciating one another in terms of what they do to contribute to uh, the household in terms of money. And one of the things that we had, which I think actually made the show, is we asked them, well, how often do you guys talk about money? And Marceau was like, once. And I was like, once a month, once, like, what do you mean? He was like, no, once. Like, we had... Once a marriage. <laughs> once a marriage. <laughs> we had the conversation, and that was it. And I imagine it was something like him saying, don't you worry, we're going to be good. I'm going to focus on this stuff. You focus on making sure, you know, like, quite honestly, very traditional sort of male and female roles. And then here we are, right? Because obviously there was a huge gap. Like, he had no understanding or appreciation for what Tisha was doing. Yeah, he thought she was just overspending. He thought that she was overspending, but again, he had no point of reference. Yeah, he assumed groceries were a fixed cost. Right. And it's like, I mean, he was uh, saying things that made it children. sound like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know the last time you checked grocery store prices, but that was a long time ago. Like, you so, can't get eggs for no quarter, boy. <laughs> right. He was also, like, I think misinterpreting the frequency. And I think a lot of people do this. You may see a lot of packages coming. Yeah. I was like, well, that's not me. That's that's Amazon. Yeah, it was I one order. I ordered them all at the same time. Amazon sent four different packages. That is not me being obsessive (laughs) about shopping. That's just the way that the logistics works. (laughs) So there are all these different things that I think happen when people are just not on the same page. And when you have more regular, frequent, and high-quality conversations, you start to understand and, again, appreciate what the other person is doing instead of making blanket assumptions and using that to kind of distort uh, your point of view or perspective on where you may be financially with your partner. I think it's important to mention that the quantity and the format will evolve over the years. We meet a lot of couples who started like we did in our debt payoff days with like very strict meetings. Like it was just like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we review the budget. She's always late. She's five (laughs) minutes late. And one person is kind of over it and the meetings just don't have the same like, you know, flair that they used to. It's okay to evolve what this looks like. We used to be very, very structured when we were in our debt payoff days, but now we've kind of found a rhythm and money conversations are woven into our everyday dialogue. We talk about money when we're washing dishes, via email, taking a walk. Mm -hmm. The other day I came in and just expressed to Julian how uh, the difference between toddler clothes and like little boy clothes is a significant difference when my son was wearing a 5t it's very different than the size the clothes that he that he wears now and like just that is going to add to our expenses every year every season that we have to replace clothes so just know that you know instead of tackling trying to tackle all the financial stuff and incorporating everything that you may have missed into these massive agendas it's okay to break it up into 
smaller, bite-sized talks. And it's okay to take a seasonal approach. Maybe you have more structured meetings during the periods where you need that. But if it's summertime and the kids are home and your work schedule is crazy, it's okay to adopt a different way of talking about money to get through you know, the season that you're in. All right. So we've gone through two of the common obstacles that we know couples uh, really struggle with when it comes to marriage and money. And the third one is um, setting the wrong goals, right? Mm -hmm. Setting the absolute wrong goals. And so what does a wrong or bad goal look (laughs) or sound like? And again, I'm reflecting back on the hundreds, maybe even thousands of conversations and exchanges that we've had with couples uh, over the last couple of years. And it's very similar to what we've been saying, but like they may check the box in their hearts and in their minds in terms of having expressed how they feel and have set this goal. But you may say, well, I want to be rich. Mm-hmm. Or they say my least favorite, but like, I just want to be comfortable. Like mm-hmm. nothing is more confusing than what comfortable, like, what is comfortable? It's relative. What might be comfortable for me? He was like, well, yeah. I was comfortable, yeah. you know, eating ramen. I'm comfortable with 2,000 less square feet Correct. <laughs> on yeah. the home. Are you comfortable? It's just kind of confusing. It's not specific enough. We hear couples say things like, well, yeah, I, I want to live in a nice house. I want to drive a nice car. Well, what is nice? Like, I, I think this Honda is pretty nice. Is that not nice enough? Do you require a luxury vehicle with heated seats and automatic start and, you know, Lamborghini doors? Like, I don't know what nice means to you. I know one of your favorites for sure is I just want to be happy. You hear that a lot, too. It's like so much you know, emotions sort of ruling. I just want to be happy. I and again, you're watching a lot of rom-coms. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about happiness. And, and and again, I feel like I drew the short story here, short <laughs> straw here, because I'm getting ready to poo-poo on happiness. <laughs> but I do, I do want to talk a little bit about it uh, from a scientific perspective, because studies have proven that happiness is actually more strongly linked to genetics than your external circumstances. Mm-hmm. And so, what that means is it's kind of baked into who you are, mm-hmm. right? And look, if your mama was not very happy, mm-hmm. your daddy you was gotta not very happy. You got to work real hard. You've got to work especially happy because you have this built-in sort of mechanism and actions and habits and this point of view on the world that are heavily shaping, you know, your experiences in your relationships uh, than what that other person might be doing. That mm-hmm. person may be doing something, you're right, that's triggering you, but you might be really easily sort of drawn into this mm-hmm. state of unhappiness. And so that's something to be mindful of. And I think the second thing is that constant happiness, this idea that you should exist or live or that a constant state of, of, of being happy is realistic, is not realistic. Yeah. It's, it's very unrealistic. You are not meant to be happy all the time. It, it is is something that you should be viewing as a physical state, very similar to being hungry or full or asleep. We're awake. Like no one is asleep all the time. We already know if you are, what's likely happened to you. Right. You're not awake all the time. We know that that's not happy or healthy, hungry, any of those other things, right? So none of those things you are meant to be all the time. When you focus just on happiness or being happy, you're also really disregarding the broader spectrum of emotions that are just as important and critical for you to have a healthy relationship and to have really good mental health. Being content is 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 a much more, I think, valuable 
characteristics or state of being, being thrilled, being anxious even. Some yeah, because it teaches you it something. It teaches you something and it leads you to appreciating some of these other more positive feelings, being delighted, being mm-hmm. joyed. Like all of those things are different. They're not synonyms. They, 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 they have and evoke different sets of feelings. And so don't just focus on happiness. Appreciate the nuance within the spectrum of emotions and states of being. Yeah. And don't think that when we say you're not meant to be happy all the time, that we're saying that you're meant to be unhappy. There are more than two emotions is the point here. There's more than just happiness and unhappiness. There's a whole lot in between. Yeah. And that's, that's very uh, American is is very Western, Western, I should say, but we're very binary thinkers, good, bad, black, white, right. Hungry, right. Wrong, right? So if Winner, you say loser. something about happiness, it's like, well, there's a lot that happened in between. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of value there. And so just be mindful of those things and the way that it is uh, manifesting itself within your relationship. And I think it's it, it can really help you overcome this particular uh, conflict that a lot of couples have. Yeah, and how it might manifest to your partner. They might feel responsible for your happiness, which mm-hmm. is also a red flag in a marriage because at the end of the day, a happy marriage is based on two individually happy people and your happiness is a decision that you make every day. It's not something that your partner can make you or, or do for you. Right. So a couple of tips for goal setting, you know, what we've learned about goal setting is very similar to what we've learned about conversations. You need both quantitative quantity and qualitative goals, right? A hyper focus on numbers, which is very common with financial goals, where it's just like it has to be these numbers on this date by this timeline. A hyper focus on the numbers is a root cause of so many issues because it often treats the experience in getting there as collateral damage. It's just like, well, that's just what had to happen. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be a commitment to a timeline or that your goals can't be aggressive, but it's more about kind of bringing to the top this mindset of not putting the achievement on autopilot. Mm. It's kind of this intention to stay present and to collect new information and inputs so that every step of the way towards your goal, you're asking yourself, okay, I took one step. What's the very next step that I need to take? Instead of reminding yourself of like, oh my gosh, we still have so much farther to go. It's about assessing every single day, taking in the new information and saying, okay, based on this, based on this tire, based on this air conditioning that's on the fritz, we got to adjust. And this is what the plan looks like. We're still going to get our goal. But tracking goals in this more balanced way just makes achieving them more about the process and the journey than the end result. Mm -hmm. The prize, so to speak, is kind of what you learn about yourself and the world or what problem-solving skills that you're developing along the way. And then you ultimately just keep going until you get what you want. The timing, you may or may not hit that. But at the end of the day, you've done it in a way that's authentic to you, that allows yourself to be present for your life as it is today. And you don't disregard everything that's happening just because you set an arbitrary, although maybe informed goal on paper. Love it. Let's wrap it up. All right. So my final thought is going back to our book, 
funny how that happens. But in our book, we share a rule called the 51% rule, which is from my dad, who's been married 42 years. And it's really his attempt to kind of simplify the math of being married. You know, the longer you're married, the more likely you are to experience what we're talking about, these periods of extreme joy, kind of balanced with these experiences of of profound sadness. And he can say that from his experience, it really takes years of being with someone to kind of find your stride, especially like we said at the top of the episode, especially if you get married at a time where you still have some growing up to do, right? It takes years to find that rhythm. And if you throw kids, sickness, grief in the mix, it can get really, really rocky and money just adds to all of that. So my final thought to everybody is to kind of lower the bar, right? <laughs> like, don't look at us thinking that we're always on the same page or that we've never argued about money. If you know our origin story, you know we've broken up because of money, because of a money argument. We've kind of built the alignment that we have today brick by brick, and we continue to do it. I don't know a single relationship that's set it and forget it. And the relationship between you, your partner, and your money is no different. So just open yourself up and make room in your life for kind of adding this to the mix. It's part of the work. It's not just your job. It's not just the kids. It's also this. Yeah, love it. I went back and forth. I did not know what I wanted my final thought to be because it's such a big topic. But I will go back to the math. I will go back to what would happen if two working couples decided to max out a 401k for 15 years. What that does for you, your family, your family tree, your kids, your children's kids, if you make all of those right decisions. Just that thing. And so I would say, yes, you can do that by yourself, but it's so much more fun when you do it with a partner. And quite honestly, if you are on the same page and you really focus on building teamwork, it's so much easier to do. Like even if we cut that goal in half, you are still significantly further ahead than likely the vast majority of people Mm -hmm. that you know. And so focus on that. If that's what you want to focus on. If you are listening to this, you're in a car with a couple and you're saying, did you hear that math? That's not BS. That's not me trying to sell you on anything. That's literally what's possible if you make a different set of decisions. And if that's enough to motivate you, then let that be the thing. If deciding to give or sort of revamp something that's really important to you, like a cause that people have forgotten about, then let that be your motivation. Mm -hmm. But either way, know that getting there with a partner, getting there with someone is going to be, uh, I think, a lot more fulfilling than if you get there by yourself. And that's not to really say that marriage is this amazing thing. And if you aren't married, then you are incomplete. But if it's something that you desire, just know that it's something that requires work. And if you get there and you're able to sort of work through some of the challenges, you can get there a lot more effectively, a lot more efficiently with a partner by your side. So you've got options. We are not perfect by any (laughs) means. I just want to reiterate that. But we do work pretty well together, and hopefully you guys can see that and use us as a reference point. Perfect. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. You know, all this conversation about marriage has me thinking that we've been talking now for about 86 weeks, and I'd like to take this thing to the next level. And I'd like to propose to you that if you like what you heard and you have not gone to the Apple's ratings and review page to leave us a five-star review, 
(laughs) Please do that now. We will see y'all next week.